Really good to see you today. If we've never met, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve here as the lead pastor at Westside. And I'm really excited. This morning, we're starting a brand new series we're calling At Our Core that we're teaching. Uh, we know over the last couple of years, we have all faced a big disruption. Uh, and as far as church goes, uh, we've all got sort of a different timeline on where we're at. I want to welcome everybody who's watching online uh, and say hello to you. So grateful that you can find a way to connect with us. Uh, and for those in the room, great to see you here in person. Uh, again, we know that for a lot of us, our timeline and returning in person uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons might be different. Um, and I know that there's a whole bunch of us uh, who are maybe in a very different spot than we were a couple of years ago. Some of us who have maybe moved to this city uh, and you're looking for a church community. Some of you maybe who are looking into Christianity and faith and asking questions about Jesus uh, for the first time or the first time in a long time. Some of you who are longing for uh, some kind of community uh, and looking for a church home. And so Wherever you fit into that, whether you're returning here after a while uh, of being off on a pandemic or here for the first time or the first time in a while, I want to say welcome and this is a perfect time for us to be together. And we thought um, as we do this, you know, for churches, there are some things that churches, for the most part, big picture stuff, we all agree on. That if you are a church, a Christian church, that you follow Jesus, that we love God, that we worship, there's some big uh, picture stuff. And yet over the last couple of years, as we've been working through the fact that the world looks very different. One of the questions I've been asking myself and some leaders here at Westside have been asking ourselves is, uh, who are we? And a little bit more specifically, who do we believe God has called us to be? And how do we feel like we are called to live out uh, what he has called us to be? And so that's what this series is going to be about. We're going to talk about uh, some of our core values. Uh, not long ago, a bunch of our leaders got in a room and we spent uh, a, a bunch of time together uh, and shared some stories. And we really want to drill down on what are some of those core values. So couple of caveats I want to throw out to you. Number one, these are not sort of our, our base core uh, theological beliefs. Those are important. There's going to be a lot of overlap. But if you're looking for some of that stuff, we do have a very long series on that that we did just before the pandemic called DNA. You can find it on our, our website or our YouTube channel. Uh, and we'd invite you to go back to that and listen to it. A lot of those values uh, come from our denominational family, which is Be in Christ Churches of Canada. Some really important stuff there. But what we're talking about in this this series is a little bit more operational. So there's going to be some overlap, but we're talking about how do we live out what we really believe. The second caveat is that as I share these core values with you, uh, I'm not trying to say, wow, we figured all these things out. We're perfect at this. We do all of these things all of the time super well. There is an aspirational aspect to this, that these are things we've seen God uh, use and work through in our community. They're things that are important to us and things that we continue to strive towards. And so rather than saying in this series, wow, here's, here's these important values that we've, we've really nailed down and they're perfect and we always do them, rather we would say um, we, we, we've definitely experienced uh, many of these things. We're working on them. And our invitation to everyone is to say, if you're looking for a community that holds some of these beliefs, we would love for you to join alongside of us as we try to work them out and figure them out and ask questions and go deeper and uh, try to make them really live and breathe in our lives and in our community. At Westside, uh, what's really important to us is pointing people towards Jesus. We want to help lead people into a relationship with Jesus, people who might be curious, asking questions, people maybe who don't have any church background. I know some of you uh, who are watching today, that's your story, and maybe you're just asking questions. So glad that you are. Uh, and for many of us, maybe who have been in church for our entire lives or for decades, uh, we want Westside to be the kind of place that you would feel comfortable inviting your friends who might be asking questions, uh, who might not have been in church ever in their life, and 
and to come and to explore. We believe that God has called us uh, to our city to serve, to love, and reach Hamilton and Ancaster and Dundas, and we have a heart for our community. And that's the context that we want to live out these values. So today, what I want to talk about, our, our first value is to talk about belonging. This morning I came in, somebody asked me, what are, you, what are you preaching about today? I said, belonging. And her response right back to me was, belonging, the language of the church. I went, oh, that's a great way to put it. Wish I had thought of that. <laughs> the language of the church, such a powerful language that God speaks to us through. Belonging, if you think of it in a value, um, when you come to church today, you go, oh, we're talking about belonging, acceptance, those kind of things. Um, for many of us in our culture, that's not real shocking. Right? You can find that all over the place. It's actually fairly popular in, in just where we are at today. You hear many types of groups, not just churches, but all kinds of people saying, we need to create communities of belonging. We need to accept people. Uh, we need to welcome people in. That's not just a church value, although it is a church value. And when our uh, leaders got together, and one of the things we did is we were trying to identify some of the things we value most. We were telling stories about uh, why this community has been meaningful to us, each of us. And everybody had a story about belonging. Different language, different circumstances for different reasons. For some, I moved to this city for the first time and nobody was around me and I needed people to support me and then I came to this place and I found these people who actually cared and they were there for me in practical ways. All this kind of, for some of us, it was, I was asking questions about faith and spirituality and I didn't know what was going on and I just knew that I needed to find something bigger than myself and then there was this community of people that they were okay with the fact that I wasn't where they were at in terms of my belief but I still found that I could belong. I was really accepted, and that helped me to grow and ask questions. There's all kinds of different stories. For some of us, it was, I mean, I was at a point in my life, and uh, I knew my life had to change, but I didn't know how to change it. Or I knew there were some things in my life that needed to go, but I couldn't actually make those changes, and I needed support and some help, and community belonging made a big deal of that. Well, psychologists have caught up to this. It's no secret. I think we all know how important belonging is to our overall well-being. As we grow up and we're kids and, and we get into adolescence, we go into high school, I feel like it just sort of gets more intense and intense and intense. How we feel about ourselves becomes so wrapped up in whether or not we feel like we're accepted by others, why, whether or not we have a group, and psychologists have noticed how important it is, your group, where you belong, and whether or not you have a sense of that belonging uh, plays so much into your well-being and your identity, who, believe, who you believe that you are, who you think that you are, and therefore how you live, what your values are, and what your actions are. And we can see this, right? I think we all have experience of this, probably positive and negative. We have times where we went, man, I found this group. Maybe remember high school, everybody needs to find a group, some kind of group. There's all kinds of groups. There's the jocks, and then there's the music people, and there's the, the student council people, and there's the really academic people, and there's the people who don't care about school and, you know, just hang out outside all the time. But all of us, we're looking for a group, and whether or not we found one that we really feel like we're accepted in or didn't has a huge impact on our well-being and our identity, whoever we are. And so our culture, I think, has grabbed onto that and got, oh, we, we really understand this. It's a very common goal. Lots of groups say it, but here's, here's the tension. Here's where it gets a little bit difficult for churches and not churches. We're not always good at it. It's a great value. Everybody, everybody says it, right? Everybody should belong here. Create a place where everybody belongs and we're all great. But then we come to some points where that value is challenged and we're not always great at figuring out what that means. So we ask questions like, what do we do when we encounter destructive behavior? Everybody belongs here, but then all of a sudden there's someone or a group of people that do things that are harmful towards other people and we go, we want to be so tolerant and inclusive, but 
Is there room for that here? It can't be room for that here. What do we do with that? Isn't what we do and how we behave really important and doesn't it really matter? We ask questions like, what do we do when we can't agree on important things? Not just details, not just things that, oh, it's you know, not huge, we can just agree to disagree. But what happens when we, we really believe something? And this is something, again, we see in our culture where, on the one hand, we praise inclusion and belonging, and yet we're seeing more and more polarization. And so in high school, where we picked our group, now as adults, we continue to pick groups, and they become uh, our political party, they become uh, maybe just wrapped up in a, a hobby, and we sort of stay a little bit surface because we don't want to get too deep. Certainly churches or religious affiliations fall in that category. Uh, and then we come to these questions and go, okay, well, if we want to belong, and on the surface that sounds great, but then when it gets down to it, we realize that in all organizations, all human beings, when enough of us get together, we struggle, don't we? And we just go, hey, this is hard. And we don't always act the way that we're supposed to act towards each other. And we don't always agree on things. And sometimes there's these divisions and hurt and pain. And it's just really difficult. So with that in mind, as I talk about belonging today, can we just go over expectations? I can't solve all those problems. I certainly can't solve all those problems in just a few minutes here this morning, but I want to look at how I think Jesus sets us up to approach them. I think part of what Jesus does is invites us into approach that doesn't say, you know what, we're just, here's a flow chart, and when somebody does this, you do this, and this is when you kick somebody out, and this is when you should never kick somebody out, and just follow the chart and make it easy. I think, actually, when Jesus gets in these debates with people, and there are certainly leaders in his religious tradition that he was dealing with that wanted to say, let's just make these easy boundaries and make sure that we can all fit in and then these are the people that don't fit in. Oftentimes what Jesus did is he launched into a story, right? A lot of times it's a story, like in Luke chapter 14, he tells a story about how there's this great banquet and there's an invitation that goes out and I'll just summarize, but a whole bunch of people who are really self-important go, oh, I'm busy, I've got something else going on and the invitation just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the people that never get invited to a party get invited to the party because the master of the banquet says, I want this place to be full. And you go, oh, that's a cool story. What are, we supposed to do? what are we supposed to do with that? And I think Jesus goes, well, I don't know, but let's figure it out. And let's think differently. And instead of just thinking of sort of the flowchart answers, why don't we think relationally? And why don't we think in terms of story? And why don't we think in terms of a great banquet? So today I want to look at a passage from Matthew chapter 9. If you've got a Bible with you, love for you to follow along. The words will be behind me so you can, you can read along. But, uh, but if you do have the Bible on your phone or uh, an actual paper copy, love for you to read along as we go. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. And here's a little bit of the context. If you're reading the Gospel of Matthew, the story of Jesus' life, um, we've just come through chapters 5 to 7, which is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. One of the biggest chunks of Jesus' teaching that we have. Foundational. In that sermon... He flips a lot of things up and down, upside down, the expectations that people have uh, of who God is and, and who God is there for. And then he goes on to talk about uh, things like morality, th things like um, marriage, things like uh, our anger and what we do with our anger, things like generosity, how we judge or shouldn't judge people. He talks about... Um, revenge and retaliation. He talks about uh, how we treat people who are our enemies, which is a great thing for us to learn about, uh, about honest speech, all these kind of stuff. And what he does, if you read through there, a lot of things, one of the things he does is he takes sort of the interpretation a lot of people naturally have, and he eliminates a bunch of loopholes, because he knows that's what we do. 
Here's a rule. Here's something that's in the Bible that we should follow. Unless I can sort of find a loophole to excuse myself or justify myself or do something else. Jesus starts to close up those loopholes. And he also starts to drill down deeper. And he takes sort of uh, the expectations of behavior and says, ah, you've heard it said. And then he quotes something from the Bible or a common interpretation in his religious tradition. And he goes deeper. He said, but I tell you. And he tries to get to the heart of the matter. Now, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that's supposed to happen in your mind, you're supposed to go, wow, I don't think I can live up to that. That standard is so, so high. You might even think in order for me to live out those values and those teaching, I would have to be a completely different person. And that's part of the point is Jesus comes and he wants to make us totally different people. He wants to transform us such that we can be those kinds of people. Next week, we're going to talk more about how we can partner uh, with God to actually uh, begin that process or continue that process uh, of actually living out what Jesus teaches us and how we can grow spiritually to do that. So Jesus drills down on some convictions. This is what we believe God is like and how he wants us to live, very important. And then in chapter 8, right after that, he steps out of, of, you know, doing all this teaching to a lot of very religious people, and he starts to heal. And he starts to heal people that would have been completely outside of the boundaries of most of the religious people he was talking to. So people who are sick, and a lot of people thought that that's because they're cursed by God. Maybe they've done something wrong, um, but they're certainly really not part of our community. Probably they like to keep them at arm's length. They're people who are begging. They're people who uh, maybe don't really have a family or a support system. People who are demon-possessed. He starts healing. Again, people that would have just been, yo, you're so out there, and we don't know what's going on in your life, but uh, you're outside of our boundary. People who are their enemies, they're Romans, and the Romans are uh, the overlords at the time of the Jewish people. And Jesus is, so he goes from this almost very, I'm, I'm just going to lay down some deep convictions that are very hard to follow. And then he goes, and it's like, people, what are you doing? You're going to all the wrong people, people who are not following your teaching, people who are outside of our ethnicity, people who are outside uh, of what we think uh, is in God's blessing. What are you doing? And we come to Matthew 9. I'll start reading in verse 9. It says, Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Significant. Matthew is a tax collector and becomes one of Jesus' followers, closest friends in his inner circle. Tax collectors are notoriously selfish, treasonous, and immoral people. They were hated sinners in this context. Here's why. Just said, the Romans are kind of running the show. The Jewish people uh, really want to be free from the Romans. They're struggling under the Romans. Uh, and the, there's obviously a lot of trouble between that relationship. Well, the Romans wanted to collect taxes. That's how you run an empire. But uh, it was a little bit easier for them, instead of just sending, you know, a Roman person to go and kind of fight for the taxes, they would hire Jewish people to go to collect taxes from their Jewish neighbors. So when you saw somebody that was kind of from your tribe, your nation, they were supposed to be your people, and they came to you, and they're working for the enemy, and then on top of that, uh, we know that tax collectors were notorious for not just collecting Rome's taxes, but adding a little bit so that they could keep it for themselves, and they got rich off of cheating their friends, their family, their neighbors, the people that they were supposed to be so connected with. So Jesus goes out, he teaches some very strict uh, convictions, then he starts healing people that everyone's like, what are you doing? And then he sees a guy that everybody hates, and he says, come follow me, be my disciple. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
to which some of us would go, what's the big deal? Everybody's got to eat. This seems uh, a, little bit, um, a little bit backwards to us. We, we might not think that that's super significant. Um, but for Jesus, again, in, in his culture, in his time, eating with people, what a lot of scholars talk about as table fellowship, which is I'm sitting down eating a meal with you, was extremely significant. It was one of the big boundary markers because eating with someone was a way of saying, I accept you. We're in the same group. Maybe even we're family. And so when Jesus goes and he's eating with tax collectors, who everybody hates, and sinners, who at least a certain portion of the religious community have been like, these people are outside of the boundary of what God is doing in our world. They go, why is Jesus doing this? These people that you shouldn't be eating with, you shouldn't be approving of. In what we think of, because again, we might go, well, eating with people, it's not a big deal. Like, I go to the food court and whoever's sitting there, that's fine. But one of the things that a lot of people, especially religious people, think of is, man, if I, if I show too much acceptance, I'm going to be condoning somebody's behavior. Have you ever thought that, felt that? Talk to somebody, who, hey, there's these people, and if I get too close to them, if I really love them, if I encourage them, if we build this deep relationship, they might think that I just, I'm cool with everything that they do and how they live their life and all that kind of stuff. And this happens in families. It happens with parents and, and their children. It certainly happens in churches where we sort of have these boundary markers and then we go, I, you know, at times, maybe it's not conscious, I need to withhold a little bit of acceptance so that they know I don't condone their behavior. That's what's happening here. And people are going, Jesus, it sort of looks like you're going, uh, sitting down with all of these sinners and you're just, you're just saying, maybe it doesn't matter how you behave or what you do. It's a tension that we still feel. It's such a big deal in uh, Jesus' time. There's a number of uh, Jewish books and writings that talk about table fellowship. Tobit is a book, for example, that says, you should give to the needy, but don't share your bread with sinners. Maccabees, another one, says um, that the people refused to eat in an unclean manner or with people that they thought were unclean, even though it meant that they would die as a result. That's how deeply they felt this conviction. We can't, we can't be so close. We can't accept people that are different from us or that, that we, we don't want to condone. It's in our Bible, Levitical laws. You can see all of it, who you're supposed to be with and not be with and eat with and not be with. Jubilees, uh, which is another literary work, says uh, that God actually commands to separate yourself from the Gentiles. Don't eat with them. Do not perform deeds like theirs. Do not become associates of theirs because their deeds are defiled and all of their ways are contaminated and despicable and abominable. There was a, a little uh, sect within Judaism uh, in um, place called Qumran, and it's usually associated with a group of Jewish people called the Essenes, and they were sort of, uh, their uh, way of living out uh, what God had commanded them to live was really to separate from everybody else, to be different, to not be influenced by people that might influence them negatively. And it says, the Essenes, uh, unrighteous people for them cannot even eat their fare, neither uh, may they sell their food to them or even touch it. So if we get anywhere close to, I'm not even, I'm not sharing, I'm not selling to you, you can't touch what I'm eating, we need to be separate. Here's why. Table fellowship could create intimate friendship, so it was increasingly reserved for those whom a person deemed the right kind of companions and who ate the right kinds of food. If we get too close, because the next thing you know, we're friends. We're influencing each other. We're right in there. And actually, if you go through the Old Testament in, in the Scriptures, and even parts of the New Testament, you can find stuff where it goes, sounds very familiar. Be careful who you surround yourself with. And just for a second, because some of us go, oh, this is so in the past. Like, 
are we past this? Like, we're learning about inclusion and belonging and all these kind of things. But then we got to say, are we really? Like, do any of you have teenagers? Maybe kids of any age. But you get teenagers, and what's one of the things you worry about or that you teach your kids about? Be careful who you spend your time with. Be careful who influences you. Be careful who your inner circle is. Why? Because parents get this. We understand that the people you really surround yourself with and you spend all your time with and you invest in, you start to become like those people. They start to become like you. There's this back and forth. It's actually a powerful principle that we all need to learn. And it's in the Bible. Proverbs 13, 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companions of fools will suffer harm. You go, why did these people, why did they spend so much time trying to create boundaries? Because there's stuff like in the, this in the Bible where you say, you got to be careful who you associate with and build deep relationships with. So we teach it to our teenagers. We have to learn it. Does it matter what we believe is, is healthy behavior? Absolutely. Should we have convictions about how we should live? Absolutely. Is it important who we give influence into our lives? Absolutely. Here is where I think we have a problem as individuals and as churches. I think the problem is that many of us have never matured past being spiritual teenagers. So when you teach your teenager or your child to be careful who you're surrounded, all that kind of stuff, that's not the end goal. That's not where you want them to live forever. I don't think. I mean, maybe for some of us, just create your boundaries and make sure that you enforce them. I think what most of us would want, if we really thought about it and go deeper, is we would say, I want you to create a sense of identity. I want you to be confident in who you are. I want you to know what your convictions are. I want you to know how to treat people, how to love people, how not to judge people, but how to make sure that you're not letting people influence you in negative ways so that you can be a healthy person. But my hope is that you will mature to be an adult that can positively influence other people not just avoid being negatively influenced by other people. And now you realize to get to that point, you need a lot more maturity. And it's not to say, oh, it just doesn't matter. We're just going to throw out the rules and we're going to include everybody and everything's going to be fine. It's to say there's actually a progression. We need to have a strong foundation. But the goal is not to be a teenage Christian where we just reinforce boundaries. The goal is to build enough confidence and, and a, enough character to say we're not just avoiding negative influence. We're becoming people who have positive influence. Look how Jesus talks about this. Verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So go ahead and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, I didn't come just to sit in the group of the boundaries where we all feel comfortable because at least on the surface, we agree about everything and we don't do the bad things that are outside of our boundaries and we can keep people at a distance. Jesus says, I've come for, quote unquote, the sinners not the people who think they're well. I've come to make people better. I've come to influence them in a positive direction. I've come to give them something that they don't have. And so when Jesus shows this radical sense of acceptance, he's not saying, and I agree with everything that they think, and I'm cool with all of their behavior, but he's saying this is the mission. I mean, this is the point. The point wasn't just to set down some boundaries, as important as some point, in some areas as that might be to learn. But the point is to come to people who are in need. And there's a lot of irony here, right, of who's the sick and who's the healthy. We might go, uh, you know, those who think that they're well versus those who know they have needs. And Jesus goes, 
man, for those who think they've got it all together and they've already got all the belonging they need because they're happy because they're in even if all these people are out, well, maybe there's not a lot that I can do for them, but I can go to the outskirts and find people that are feeling the fact that they're not in. He says, quoting Hosea 6, verse 6, that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy uh, in that uh, language means covenant faithfulness. It's a disposition of your inner world that should match up with your outer world. It's, uh, it's kind of this deep love and faithfulness. And God, in, uh, through Hosea the prophet, is telling the people at the time, he's talking about broken religion, he's talking about religion and religious leaders that aren't helping anybody grow, aren't helping anybody feel included, aren't really providing that sense of I- identity. And he's going, you don't understand. You've got the sacrifices, you've got the system, you've got the rituals, you've got all that. But God goes, what I want, really want, is mercy. What I want is your heart. What I want is for you to connect and know who I am and how I love people to be part of that covenant, the covenant that is to bless the entire world, to bring God's spirit and God's healing to the entire world. The next, uh, the next line that's not quoted here, but from uh, uh, Hosea 6.6 6 says, uh, following up on that, what God wants is the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. It's a parallel phrase, sacrifices and burnt offerings, these things that they would do in the temple as far as maintaining the relationship with God and communing with God that were very important. But he says, what I really want, what God really wants for you is is that you would, on an experiential level, know him. You would know his character. You would know his heart. Yes, we've got these rituals. Some of them can be very helpful. Yes, we've got got certain practices that we go through that remind us of very important things. But God's saying through Hosea and Jesus reminding them what what God really wants for you. He wants you to know his heart. He wants you to know that he is the God that loves the world so much that he would send his son into the world to die for the world. Jesus showing what it looks like to say he did not consider his his position, his equality with God, something to be grasped, but instead he gave up that, that privilege and became a servant. Even unto death. That he would die for the people he loves. That God is the God who, who shepherds his, and when he sees the one sheep that is lost, he leaves the 99 and he goes find them. He is a God that whether we're comfortable with it or not, he goes beyond the boundaries to offer belonging. And you go, that sounds so risky. Because what if, what if people think that God is just condoning however they're living? And what if it's not clear on the bad things that they're doing? And what if we had these communities that got so messy and people, you know, believed different things and did different things. And, and there was times where we were just, oh, and what if I can't solve all of those tensions and problems? Except to say, what if we wanted to deal with all of those tensions, which I think Jesus is actually leading us into? What if we dealt with those, approached those issues with deep and profound relationship. The way that Jesus, here it says that he ate with tax collectors and sinners. In some of the other gospels, it says that he was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. You go, how could we ever do this? How could we ever uh, join with people who are so different than us or, or, or they behave differently than us? Or how do we do What if, what if, what if, instead of just building more and more fences, We just tried to be friends. I mean, real friends. Where we started to see people and we we recognize, hey, people aren't perfect, which includes me. Because again, we got to go back to the fact, some of us, some of us, we sort of assume that we're the in ones and we're doing great. Again, there's some irony here where Jesus is going, well, the people who think that they're all great, I don't know if I have much to offer them. 
But when we realize that we are also the dependent ones, also the ones who are given as a gift belonging, we go, oh, people aren't perfect. I'm not perfect. Changes the way that we look at each other. This is the basic foundation for how Jesus teaches a lot about how we should not judge people. It doesn't mean that we can't differentiate when something's harmful or destructive or even right or wrong. But to say, how do we actually look at other people? We'll start with this. Look at yourself and realize, be honest with where you're at. And that the reason why any of us belong is because we belong, because we have been offered grace. We've been offered something that we did not deserve. What would it look like to really uh, treat people like they're not projects? Like, I'm not just trying to fit you into my religious system. I actually care about you. You're my friend. I'm not just trying to get you to go through the rituals. You're not my project. You're, you're my friend to build the relationship. Let me give you three real quick things. Number one, we start with humility. A non-judgmental, uh, foundational standpoint where we said, all of us, all of us receive grace. My standing before God, my relationship with God doesn't mean that what I do doesn't matter. But it's only because he's offered it. I start with knowing that about myself, and I'm not perfect, and I don't do it all right, and if it was up to me and my efforts, I don't fit, quote unquote, in either. Number two, what if we had some empathy, and instead of saying, uh, here's all the things I think you should do and believe, and again, not that those aren't things important, but what if we led by listening, understanding, caring, hearing where people are at, listening to their actual questions, even if they're questions that we don't have the answers to, and we wish we did, but they make us uncomfortable, And number three, deep and profound relationship, entering into life together, building trust. How often in churches we just, we want to fix everybody. And somebody shows up and go, oh, I can fix you. Here's just do this, do this, do this, be this, be this, be this. And people go, who are you? Jesus was a friend to sinners, not just the guy that showed up with a flow chart on how to fix your life. But hey, I love you. I want to walk with you. Jesus crossed boundaries in order to offer belonging. Super risky. But what if there was a group of people who had strong convictions and beliefs, really believed it mattered how we live and how we treat each other, but were willing to say we too will cross boundaries in order to offer belonging? Question for you, is there someone or maybe a group of people who have you, you have withdrawn acceptance from? Maybe because you're scared, you don't want them to think you're condoning behavior or their thoughts or whatever. Maybe it's been family that you've been at each other because we've been polarized and you're arguing about politics or mass or vaccines or a million other things that we just let divide us. Is there somebody where you go, man, maybe not even intentionally, but you just started drawing back from them because you went, I don't want them to think I'm cool with all this kind of stuff. And what would it look like for you to go, man, I've put up a boundary. What if I cross that boundary and offered them a little bit of belonging? some relationship? What if I walked towards them and cared for them? I think the only way we'll have a shot at doing that, because this is hard, and there's so many things that will come up that we'll just go, man, I don't know how to do this and deal with this situation. I think the the only way that we're even going to get a start on it is we fix our eyes on Jesus and we realize that he's done it for us, that there's none of us None of us who would be in a right relationship with God. None of us who would feel like uh, we have our identity and our belonging. If it wasn't for the fact that Jesus was willing to cross the boundary to offer me belonging. And there, to bask in that truth, 
to let it sink into our heart and to our mind, to make it who we are, children of Almighty God, love himself, and then to be able to open up our hands and offer it to the world. Heavenly Father, um, thank you that we belong to you because you love us. Thank you for loving us so much, practically speaking, that you sent your son into this world to show us what it looks like to love and to sacrifice, even to die for the ones that you love. I pray today for anybody who feels like they don't belong. Maybe they've been uh, to a church or another type of community and they felt uh, kicked out, they felt excluded, they felt on the outside. God, we want to repent of that, where, where we have been part of that, where we have let our, our boundaries push people to the margins, where uh, we haven't helped them to fit in. And I pray that today, anybody who's really feeling that, you might fill them with your Holy Spirit, with your love, that they might know and hear your words spoken to them. You are my daughter, you are my son, whom I love and whom I delight. God, for all of us, we pray that you'd fill us with that kind of deep confidence and identity and that even when it's challenging and difficult, uh, you would give us what we need to show that kind of belonging and love to the world. That you'd give us courage, that you'd give us strength, that you'd give us grace, all in the name of Jesus.